0: Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Friday, August 5th, 2022 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, how to get a better night's sleep from the New York Times. And we all know people who seem to attract fun Here's how you can do it, too, from ideas.ted.com. Plus, is chocolate good for you? From the New York Times. And more, time permitting. Here's our first report. How to Get a Better Night's Sleep by Tara Parker Pope from the New York Times. Most people know they need to eat right and exercise to be healthy. But what about sleep? We spend about one-third of our lives asleep, and sleep is essential to better health. But many of us are struggling with sleep. Four out of five people say that they suffer from sleep problems at least once a week and wake up feeling exhausted. So how do you become a more successful sleeper? Grab a pillow, curl up, and keep listening to find out. How much sleep do you really need? If you wake up tired, chances are you're not getting enough sleep. These strategies may help you determine your sleep needs. The magic number. The best person to determine how much sleep you need is you. If you feel tired, you probably need more sleep. But science does offer some more specific guidance. People who sleep seven hours a night are healthier and live longer. Sleeping less than seven hours is associated with a range of health problems, including obesity, heart disease, depression, and impaired immune function. But sleep needs vary greatly by individual. Age, genetics, lifestyle, and environment all play a role. The National Sleep Foundation recently updated its sleep recommendations based on age. For newborns, 0 to 3 months, daily sleep needs are 14 to 17 hours. For infants, 4 to 11 months, 12 to 15 hours. Toddlers 1 to 2 years need 11 to 14 hours. Preschoolers ages 3 to 5 years need 10 to 13 hours. School-age kids 6 to 13 years need 9 to 11 hours. Teenagers 14 to 17 years 8 to 10 hours. Younger adults between the ages of 18 and 25, need 7 to 9 hours, adults from 26 to 64 years of age, 7 to 9 hours, and older adults, 65 plus, 7 to 8 hours. While these numbers are useful guidelines, they really don't tell you anything about your individual sleep needs, which are largely determined by genetics and strongly influenced by your habits. Ask yourself, are you sleepy? This simple question is the best way to determine if you're getting adequate sleep. If you often feel tired at work, long for a nap, or fall asleep on your morning or evening commute, your body is telling you that it's not getting enough sleep. If you're getting seven or eight hours of sleep a night but still feeling tired and sleep-deprived, you may be suffering from interrupted sleep or a sleep disorder, and may need to talk to a doctor and undergo a sleep study. Keep a sleep diary. Even if you think you're getting enough sleep, you may be surprised once you see your sleep patterns in black and white. Some of the new activity trackers will monitor your sleep patterns for you, but you can also do it easily yourself. For the next week, keep a sleep diary. Write down the time you go to bed and the hour you wake up. Determine the total number of hours you sleep. Note whether you took naps or woke up in the middle of the night. Note how you felt in the morning, refreshed and ready to conquer the world, or groggy and fatigued. Not only will a sleep diary give you important insights into your sleep habits, but it will be useful to your doctor if you think you are suffering from a sleep disorder. Take a vacation from your alarm clock. Want to really identify your individual sleep needs? Try this sleep vacation experiment. To do this, you will need two weeks when you don't have somewhere to be at a specific time in the morning. If you have a flexible job, you can do this anytime, or you may have to wait until a vacation. The experiment requires a little discipline. 1. Pick the same bedtime every night. 2. Turn off your alarm. 3 record the time you wake up. Chances are you will sleep longer during the first few days because you are catching up on lost sleep, so the first few days of data won't be useful. But over the course of a few weeks, if you stick to the scheduled bedtime and allow yourself to wake up naturally, you'll begin to see a pattern emerge of how many hours of sleep your body needs each night. Once you determine your natural sleep needs, Think about the time you need to wake up to get to work or school on time and pick a bedtime that allows you enough sleep to wake up naturally. Morning Lark or Night Owl? Do you pop out of bed bright and early, ready to take on the world? Or do you find yourself making friends with the snooze button after staying up all night? Take the quiz. Do you wake up hungry? What's your best time of day? Those and other questions are part of a test commonly used by sleep experts to determine whether you are a lark, a night owl, or somewhere in between. How to become a morning person. Like most creatures on Earth, humans come equipped with a circadian clock, a roughly 24-hour internal timer that keeps our sleep patterns in sync with our planet, at least until genetics, age, and our personal habits get in the way. Even though the average adult needs eight hours of sleep per night, there are so-called short sleepers who need far less, and morning people, who research shows, often come from families of other morning people. Then there's the rest of us, who rely on alarm clocks. For those who fantasize about greeting the dawn with a smile, there's hope. With a little focus, discipline, and patience, you have the ability to reset your own internal clock. But be warned, it's not easy. Changing your sleep pattern requires commitment, and it means changing old habits. No more TV-watching marathons late into the night. Changing your internal sleep clock requires inducing a sort of jet lag without leaving your time zone and sticking it out until your body clock resets itself. And most importantly, not resetting it again. Here's how to become more of a morning person. Step 1. Set a goal for your wake-up time. Step 2. Move your current wake-up time by 20 minutes each day. For example, if you regularly rise at 8 a.m. but really want to get moving at 6 a.m., set the alarm for 7.40 a.m. on Monday. On Tuesday, set it for 7.20 a.m. and so on until you are setting your alarm for 6 a.m. Step 3. Go to bed when you are tired. Avoid extra light exposure from computers or televisions as you near bedtime. Step 4. When your alarm goes off in the morning, don't linger in bed. Hit yourself with light. Open your shades. Turn on the lamp. Step 5. Go to bed a little earlier the next night. In theory, you should get sleepy about 20 minutes earlier each night. A word of warning. While this method works for many, it doesn't work for everyone. Very early risers and long-time night owls have a hard time ever changing. How to wake up. If you are struggling to wake up in the morning, sleep experts suggest a few simple ways to train your body. Buy a louder alarm. It may sound silly, but if you regularly sleep through your alarm, you may need a different alarm. If you use your phone alarm, change up the ringtone and set the volume on high. Sunlight. One of the most powerful cues to wake up the brain is sunlight. Leaving your blinds open so the sun shines in will help you wake up sooner if you regularly sleep late into the day. Eat breakfast. Eating breakfast every day will train your body to expect it and help you get in sync with the morning. If you've ever flown across time zones, you'll notice that airlines often serve scrambled eggs and other breakfast foods to help passengers adjust to the new time zone. Don't blow it on the weekend. Besides computer screens, the biggest saboteur for an aspiring morning person is the weekend. Staying up later on Friday or sleeping in on Saturday sends the brain an entirely new set of scheduling priorities, so by Monday, a 6 a.m. alarm may feel like 4 a.m. It's tough, but stick to your good sleep habits, even on the weekends. Up next, We All Know People Who Seem to Attract Fun. Here's How You Can Do It Too by Katherine Price from ideas.ted.com. We all know people who seem to attract fun. They're the friends whose presence at a dinner party guarantees that everyone is going to have a good time. They exude warmth, playfulness, and self confidence, and people always appear happy to have them around. What might not have occurred to you is that it's possible for you to become one of those people yourself, even if you think of yourself as shy or introverted. Consider some of the traits that popped up in people's responses when I asked the members of my research group for my latest book, The Power of Fun, to describe people in their lives whom they considered fun. Here are some of their answers. They're spontaneous. They're at ease with themselves and comfortable in their own skin. They're not afraid to be silly. They're not afraid to try new things and to be a beginner. They're not afraid to be vulnerable. They're appreciative of the small things. They find joy in being alive. Many of the descriptions of fun people also had to do with the way the fun folks made other people feel in their presence. For example, you never feel judged by them. They make everyone feel included. They're considerate of others' feelings. They get excited with you. They create wonderful, shared memories. When I read through these descriptions, two things stood out. Very few of the characteristics mentioned were genetically determined, and you don't need to be extroverted to be considered fun. For instance, you do not need to be the life of the party to make other people feel included or to create wonderful memories or to appreciate the small things in life. In fact, many of the qualities people mentioned, such as being considerate of other people's feelings, are things that introverts do naturally. What's more, many of the traits that make people seem fun are the result of choices and habits practiced over days and years. This means that, counterintuitive though it may seem, being a fun person is a skill we can develop. The primary thing that separates people who attract fun from their peers is their attitude. They approach life in general with what I call a fun mindset. Having a fun mindset refers to the habit of intentionally approaching and reacting to your life in a way that is attractive to fun, or more specifically, true fun, which I define as the confluence of playfulness, connection, and flow. The secret to developing a fun mindset is is to deliberately seek out as many opportunities as you can in order to create or appreciate playfulness, connection, and flow. Here are some specific suggestions for how to do so. Number one, be easy to laugh. In the words of former Twitter CEO Dick Costolo, the easiest way to have more humor is not to try to be funny. Instead, just look for moments to laugh. My husband and I refer to this as being easy to laugh, and it is one of the most powerful ways to nurture a fun mindset. My copy editor has correctly pointed out that easy to laugh is not actually an expression and doesn't make grammatical sense. Instead, it really should be laugh easily. But it's become so much a part of our family lexicon that I'm keeping it. We all enjoy spending time with people who make us laugh and who laugh a lot themselves. The easier you are to laugh... And the more things you can find to laugh about, the more attractive you'll be both to other people and to fun. And to point out the obvious, you'll also spend more time laughing, which in itself will make you feel good. Number two, say yes and. Yes and is a technique and philosophy derived from improv comedy in which you respond to new ideas and suggestions by agreeing with them, the yes, and building on them, The end. In her book, Bossy Pants, Master Improviser and Saturday Night Live alum, Tina Fey explains it like this. You are supposed to agree and then add something of your own. If I start a scene with, I can't believe it's so hot in here, and you just say, yeah, we're kind of at a standstill. But if I say, I can't believe it's so hot in here, and you say, what did you expect? We're in hell. Or if I say, I can't believe it's so hot in here, And you say, yes, this can't be good for the wax figurines. Or if I say, I can't believe it's so hot in here. And you say, I told you we shouldn't have crawled into this dog's mouth. Now we're getting somewhere. You don't need to be an improv comedian to practice the art of yes and believe me. Instead, you can use its underlying philosophy, deliberately choosing not to shoot down ideas, but instead to affirm and build on them, as a way to strengthen your fun mindset by opening yourself to spontaneity, making other people feel included, and becoming more adaptive and, for that matter, less of a wet blanket. Number three, sprinkle playfulness, connection, and flow into your days. Another way to develop a fun mindset is to regularly and explicitly ask yourself, How could I add a bit of playfulness, connection, or flow to whatever I'm doing or experiencing right now? You can do this whether you're with other people or alone, and your ideas don't have to be earth-shattering to be effective. A woman named Helen, who was participating in my research group, decided to experiment with the idea while pouring herself some tea. I thought, how could I make it more fun, she told me in an email, so I poured tea while standing on one leg, and you know what? It was more fun. I don't think that her one-legged tea pouring will end up being one of her peak fun memories, but it goes to show how approaching life with a fun mindset can affect your moment-to-moment experience and improve your mood. Figuring out ways to add even teensy bits of playfulness, connection, and flow to your everyday activities can also help objectively non-fun activities, such as chores, feel more tolerable. It reminds me of the introduction to the Mary Poppins song, A Spoonful of Sugar, in which Mary matter-of-factly states, in every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. You find the fun and snap. The job's a game. Granted, the ensuing scene involves Mary performing a whistling duet with an animatronic robin and doing a fair amount of magic. And I'm not saying that you're going to turn cleaning your cat's litter box into a delight, but the more you can cultivate a fun mindset in your everyday life, the lighter your everyday life will feel. Number four, send out play signals. Another way to build a fun mindset is to create more moments of everyday connection by sending out more play signals, i.e., things we do to let other creatures know that we are being playful and that our intentions are friendly and to invite them to respond with playfulness, too. One of the play signals dogs use is the bow they perform when they try to get another dog to play with them. They lunge onto their front elbows, sticking their bottoms in the air, and wag their tails. An example of a play signal in humans would be brief eye contact combined with a smile or a comment that invites conversation. Even a playfully sarcastic line can work, such as, nice weather we're having when you're in the midst of a snowstorm. This is one of the many ways in which our interactions with our devices are getting in the way of fun. Instead of sending play signals, we're all staring down at our screens. With no signals, there are no invitations to play, and no play happens. Making a point to look up from your phone and send play signals is a wonderful way to invite more playful interactions, and ultimately, more fun, into your life. What play signals do is invite a safe, emotional connection, if even for an instant, writes Stuart Brown in his book, Play. Even in casual interactions, the sincere compliment, the remark about the hot, rainy, freezing, damp weather, a joke or sympathetic observation opens people up emotionally. It transforms a grim, fearful, and lonely world into a lively one, he writes. And if you're still feeling insecure or apprehensive about putting yourself out there, remember that anything you do to attract fun is a gift to the people you're with. As best-selling author Michael Lewis points out, people don't want to have a boring life or even a boring conversation. They're just risk-averse. If you create an environment where there's no reason to be afraid, all of a sudden things loosen up, he writes. In other words, everyone wants to have fun, they just don't know how. The more you cultivate your own fun mindset, the more fun you'll attract, and the better equipped you'll be to invite others to join you. This is an excerpt from the new book, The Power of Fun, How to Feel Alive Again, by Katherine Price. Up next, is chocolate good for you? Studies suggest that cocoa might benefit health, but it's unclear how that may translate to a typical bar of chocolate by Alice Callahan from the New York Times. Question. Is chocolate good for you? Chocolate has a long and illustrious reputation. Made from cocoa, which is derived from the beans of the cacao tree, whose scientific name translates to food of the gods, it was used by some of the earliest Mesoamerican cultures as food, medicine, ritual offering, and perhaps even currency. It's no less valuable in modern times. The global chocolate market grew by nearly 20% between 2016 and 2021 with an approximate revenue of $980 billion in 2021, according to the market research firm Statista. Taste surely plays a role in chocolate's popularity, but you may have also heard that this delectable treat is good for your health. How does this perception stack up against the science? Cocoa is clearly good for you, said Dr. Dariush Mozaffarian, a cardiologist and professor of nutrition at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy. Whether chocolate is good for you or not depends on how much cocoa is actually in it and what else is in it, he said. Cocoa beans are packed with fiber and loads of phytonutrients, Dr. Mozaffarian said, referring to the natural chemicals found in plants. Cocoa is thought to contain about 380 different chemicals, among them a large class of compounds called flavanols that have attracted significant research interest for their potential health benefits. But it's less clear how many flavanols and other phytonutrients you need to improve health or whether your chocolate bar of choice contains enough of them to do so. And experts have differing opinions on this point. Milk chocolate typically contains about 20% cocoa, Dr. Mazafarian said, though the cocoa content can vary. The Food and Drug Administration requires milk chocolate to contain at least 10% cocoa, but some milk chocolate bars contain as much as 50% or more. Dark chocolate usually contains more cocoa than milk chocolate, but it can also vary greatly, so check labels carefully, he said. For possible health benefits, he recommended choosing dark chocolate that is at least 70% cocoa. Many small, short-term human trials have found that dark chocolate or standardized cocoa supplements or drinks can modestly lower blood pressure and improve blood cholesterol and the health of blood vessels in adults. And some longer-term observational studies have found that those who eat more cocoa might have a lower risk of certain cardiovascular diseases, Dr. Masafarian said. In a systematic review published in February in the journal JAMA Network Open, Dr. Mazafarian and his colleagues examined how certain foods and nutrients were associated with heart health conditions. They found probable or convincing evidence that eating chocolate was linked with a reduced risk of cardiovascular disease, estimating that an average daily intake of just 10 grams, or about one-third of an ounce of chocolate, was associated with a 6% reduction in the overall risk of cardiovascular disease. But these types of estimates are based on observational studies, which have important limitations, said Dr. Joanne Manson, chief of preventive medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. These studies can only identify correlations between eating chocolate and health. They can't prove that chocolate causes benefits, people who eat more chocolate may be different in other ways that affect their health, Dr. Manson said. For his part, Dr. Musafarian said, eating a small amount of dark chocolate every day is probably really good for us, and it will make you happy because it tastes good, he said. And that is an excerpt from the New York Times article. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker.